Let me hold us up in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this beautiful day, for this place where we can meet and worship you, sing to you, and learn your word. Lord God, I pray that you will speak to us through your word uh, today uh, to your honor and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think that we are all familiar with the saying, you can't see the forest for the trees. In other words, we can be concentrating so much on particular details that we don't see the big picture. Well, reading our Bibles can sometimes be like that. We can read and study a particular passage so that we lose sight of the overall storyline of the book that we are in. And therefore, sometimes it's a good idea to step back and try to get a bird's eye view of the books of the Bible. When we do this, it can help us to see how the individual parts uh, fit together. And that's what I propose to do uh, today. One of the most important books in the New Testament, in my opinion, is the book of Galatians. And one reason for this is that Galatians, perhaps more than any other book, describes the uniqueness of Christianity. Every other religion in the world essentially is a list of laws and rules which enslave people. Christianity is different. In Christ, we have been freed from slavery to the law and to the flesh. Now, that does not mean that Christians are lawless. Instead, Christians have the law of Christ within us. And through the internal guiding of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are being transformed uh, to live like Christ. Now, Galatians essentially does three things. First, it establishes Paul's apostleship. Second, it is an eloquent defense of the gospel, the fundamental Christian doctrine that people are saved only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And this makes the entire Christian family one, regardless of our background. And third, the book discusses the implications of salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ. We are to live a new life by the faith that flows from the working of the Holy Spirit in us. So that is what we are going to look at. First, though, we are going to look at the background of the book, and then we will look at Paul's apostleship, the gospel, and the implication of the, gospels, uh, of the gospel for our lives. So first, some background. Galatia was one of the provinces of the Roman Empire. It was located between the provinces of Asia and Cappadocia in the central part of what is today modern Turkey. Now, most biblical scholars hold that Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul probably in the year 48, uh, shortly before the important council held in Jerusalem, which is recorded in Acts chapter 15. And if that is the case, Galatians likely was Paul's first epistle and perhaps 
the first New Testament epistle written, the other likely candidate for that being the book of James. On Paul's first missionary journey, uh, which is reported in Acts 13 and 14, he and Barnabas visited the towns of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe in southern Galatia. And those congregations likely were the addressees of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, there was a specific reason why Paul wrote this book. After Paul and Barnabas had evangelized the southern part of Galatia, some Jewish Christians came into the area. These people are often called Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were doing two things. First, they were claiming that Paul's authority was inferior to that of other apostles like Peter and James. And second, they were spreading the false teaching that Gentile converts must live as Jews and undergo circumcision and submit to certain aspects of the law of Moses in order to be saved. Now, Paul realized that adding anything to the gospel is deadly because then it is no longer the gospel. And as a result, Galatians focuses on the gospel, namely what it is and its implications for our lives. But he begins by accrediting his own apostleship. Uh, so Paul begins the epistle in verse 1 by saying, and by the way, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, it's very similar to the English Standard Version, which are in the seats there. Uh, there is one translational difference in chapter 3, which I will deal with when we come to it. But Paul begins in verse 1 by saying this, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, when Paul was writing, the conventional way of beginning a letter was for the writer to first identify himself, as Paul does here. Paul does this in all of his other epistles as well. However, given the background uh, and, the, uh, and the context of the epistle to the Galatians, what he says here is actually loaded with meaning. Paul's apostleship had been challenged by the Judaizers, so he does not begin this letter by calling himself a bondservant of Christ, as he does in Romans, Philippians, and Titus, or by calling himself a prisoner of Christ, as he does in Philemon. Instead, he calls himself an apostle, but then he does more. He emphasizes that his apostleship was not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's clearly accrediting his own authority by emphasizing that his position as an apostle uh, did not come through any human agency, but came directly from Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, in verse 10, through the end of chapter 2, Paul continues 
to recount his own history to establish his authority as an apostle. In verses 10 through 12, he says this, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was uh, preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. By repeating the fact that the gospel was, uh, that was preached by me is not according to man, and I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. Paul is emphasizing the divine commission which came directly from Jesus Christ. And he returns to that point in verses 15 and 16. Then, in verses 13 and 14, Paul discusses his pre-conversion life. He points out in verse 14 that he was, quote, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, end quote. In other words, he had nothing to gain by becoming a Christian. And in fact, his entire life as a Christian was one of persecution and suffering as he recounts for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Yet, it was all worth it because now he has Jesus. And that is important because the willingness to suffer and ultimately to die for one's beliefs, as was true with the Apostle Paul, reveals the sincerity of one's beliefs. What Paul is saying here is that he had no ulterior motives for what he was doing and teaching. Then, in verses 16 through 20, he points out that three years after his conversion, he did meet with Peter and James in Jerusalem and stayed with them for 15 days. He then says in verses 21 through 24, Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, uh, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. What he's telling us uh, is that uh, Peter and James knew him and knew of his activities on behalf of the gospel, and also the truth of his message was validated by all kinds of other believers and other churches, and particularly by believers who had been predisposed not to believe him. And his statement uh, at the uh, end of verse 24, they were glorifying God because of me, actually should speak to us. It is a question that we should ask ourselves. Are people glorifying God because of me? I mean, in Paul's life, it was a complete turnaround from being a persecutor to being persecuted, and yet people glorified God through him. That is something that we need to think about in our own lives. 
Um, but then, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul recounts that he again uh, went to Jerusalem and met with Peter, James, and John. In verse 2, he specifically says that he, quote, submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, end quote. And then he adds in chapter 2, verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, who's Peter, and John, who were, were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. In other words, no one can doubt Paul's apostleship since the pillars of the church themselves had acknowledged Paul's apostleship uh, and acknowledged that his apostleship was on the same level and authority as their own. He received the right hand of fellowship of Peter, James, and John. In other words, they fully accepted and approved of him what he was teaching. And further, they commissioned Paul to keep on preaching and teaching to the Gentiles just as he had been doing all along. In fact, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul recounts how he even had to withstand and rebuke Peter to his face because Peter was not walking in line with the gospel when he had stopped eating with the Gentiles. In short, Paul shows us these things. Number one, he's shown us the nature of his life and his conversion to Christ. Second, he's shown us the fact that Christ personally appeared to him and revealed the gospel to him. Third, he's shown us the substance of his teaching. Fourth, the fact that the recognized leaders of uh, the church all acknowledged the truth of his message and his apostleship. And fifth, the fact that he even corrected Peter when Peter fell into error. All of this demonstrates that he is indeed an apostle of the highest order. Not only that, the Galatians knew that because they knew him. He points out in the middle of chapter 4 that they had had a close relationship with each other. And that's why in chapter 1, verse 6, and in chapter 4, verse 9, he is amazed at how quickly the Galatians have turned from the gospel that he had taught them to follow the teaching of the Judaizers. Well, this leads us to the gospel itself. So what is the gospel? The gospel is a Greek word which means good news. Uh, now, the word gospel was not originally a Christian term, but was used in the Greek and Roman world for good news of a great historical event that changes the listener's condition and affects their lives, such as victory in a war or the ascension of a new king. When Christians took over this term, the gospel now refers to the good news of the greatest event in the history of the world, namely the good news 
of what God has done through Jesus Christ to reach us. The gospel is not advice about what we have to do in order to reach God. The gospel is the good news that, uh, of what God has done for us. He has done for us what we never could have done for ourselves. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He perfectly obeyed God the Father in everything. The Bible says he was tempted in all things as we are and yet was without sin. That qualified him to step into our shoes and on the cross die the death that we should have died and take upon himself our sin and pay the penalty for our sin that otherwise we would have to pay but never could. Since we are sinful creatures, we never could earn our salvation on our own. All we can do is believe who Jesus is, believe what he has done for us, and in faith and repentance, turn to him as our Lord and our Savior and give him our lives so that he, as he said, will come in and live his life through us. As Paul puts it in chapter 2, verse 15, we are not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. He says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 21, namely that the law never was able to impart life. And when we turn to Jesus, God indeed will save us. In other words, he forgives all of our sins, but he does more. Jesus not only took our sins and the punishment that we deserve unto himself, but he also imputes his righteousness to us. In other words, all of the good that he deserves is imputed to us. He thereby reestablishes a right relationship between God and us. But that's not all. When we come to faith in Christ, the Bible says that God takes our hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh. In other words, a heart just like his own. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16 also says that we receive the mind of Christ and he also gives us the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us. In Christ, we therefore have the means to live new, restored, faithful, and good lives. As Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is the gospel. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the gospel is the heart and soul of the book of Galatians. 
Chapters 3 and 4, in my opinion, are two of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament. And the reason is that these two chapters not only focus on the gospel, but show how it has been the essence of God's plan from the very beginning, beginning with Abraham. So let's take a look at these two chapters. In chapter 3, verse 2, Paul asks the fundamental question, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now that is a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. We receive the Spirit uh, through faith. What Paul is doing is contrasting Christianity with every other religion in the world. Now, there are many religions in the world. Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age beliefs, etc. But there are only two kinds of religion. There's Christianity and everything else. What I mean is this. In every other religion except Christianity, every other religion essentially holds that if you want God, or the gods to accept you and take you to heaven or nirvana when you die, it's up to you to do enough good deeds, to make enough sacrifices, to deny yourself enough things, and then hope that maybe you will be accepted and go to the good place when you die. That way of thinking is doomed to fail because God is perfect, and so he holds us to the standard of perfection. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 48, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. But we all know that we are not perfect. We can't even meet our own standards, let alone God's. That is why Jesus came to earth. He was perfect, so he was able to and in fact did for us what we could never do for ourselves. All we can do is believe that and receive it. And Paul makes that clear in the rest of chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 6, he quotes from Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He then applies that to us in verses 7 through 9. He says in verse 7, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And in verse 9, he likewise says, Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. In fact, in verses 10 through 14, he points out that no one is justified by the law, but is under a curse. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that we would receive the promise, namely the Spirit through faith. Then in the rest of chapter 3, 
through chapter 4, verse 7, he contrasts the covenant that God made with Abraham with the law of Moses and shows how God's plan of redemption all fits together. In verse 16 of chapter 3, Paul even picks up on the grammar of the Abrahamic covenant as found in Genesis and says this, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, uh, uh, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. Amazingly, he's pointing out that even at the beginning of God's plan of redemption, Christ was the ultimate meaning of the covenant. And Paul makes the same point in chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, where he notes that the whole story of Israel was, in essence, an allegory pointing to Christ and the church. Now, the law of Moses came 430 years later and does not invalidate the covenant which uh, was previously ratified by God. Uh, in chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, Paul tells us that the law was only temporary. It only applied until Christ came. He says in verses 23 through 25, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. Now, the English Standard Version says our guardian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor or guardian. Now, the word translated tutor or guardian is the Greek word pedagogue. A pedagogue was a slave in a Roman household in charge of the minor children until they reached the age of maturity. His job was to instill good conduct and behavior in them and punish wrong behavior. And that's what the law of Moses or any other law does. The law can only tell us what to do and what not to do and provide punishments for violations. But the law can never change people's hearts. And it cannot give us the means or ability or desire or will to do as we should. Law is simply an external standard to which we are supposed to conform. And that is where Christ and our faith in him, namely the gospel, is fundamentally different. At the beginning of chapter 4, Paul points out in verses 1 through 7, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. 
But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his, uh, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, what he is saying here is that in Christ, we are no longer minor children. We have been redeemed. We have been adopted. We are no longer slaves in bondage to the law of Moses, but our sons. We have been brought into a close, personal relationship with God that we could never achieve on our own. And the word Abba denotes an intimate loving relationship. Now, this business about all of us being sons is particularly good news for women. And the reason is that Paul is using something from his own culture to make his point about how radical the gospel really is. You see, in his culture, only sons particularly firstborn sons, could inherit, and only men or boys were adopted. Women were largely second-class citizens. What he's telling us is that in Christ, women now have equal status with men as adopted firstborn sons of God. And as a result, he summarizes this in Galatians 3, verse 28, where he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is nothing else like this in any other religion in the entire world. So, what are the implications of the gospel for our lives. Well, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul discusses the implications of the gospel for our lives. The foundational principle uh, is set forth in chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, this freedom includes freedom from the struggle of trying to keep a law that we could never keep. Freedom from the struggle of trying to gain or keep God's favor when we were still in our sins. And freedom from the guilt and shame of our sins because we now know that we have been accepted by God as a result of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Thus, the gospel frees us to live as God created us to live free to live an abundant life, as Jesus said in John 10, verse 10. We have been freed to live lives pleasing to God and fulfilling to us, unencumbered by sin and the man-made rules and regulations that bind so many. Instead, 
we now have the Holy Spirit inside of us to empower us, to help us to live as we should. And all of this separates Christianity from every other religion and worldview in the entire world. Now, Paul argues that all people's lives are either based on grace uh, or law, faith or works. There is no third alternative. And the two concepts, grace and faith, or law and works, cannot be combined. If a person opts for salvation uh, by works and the law, then, as Paul says in chapter 5, verse 2, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Further, he points out that a person cannot pick and choose which of the requirements of the law to obey. In verse 3, he says, if you place yourselves under one of the requirements of the law, then you are, quote, under obligation to keep the whole law, end quote. And the rabbis have said that under the law of Moses, there were 613 requirements. If you put yourself under one, you've put yourself under all 613. Faith is different. Faith is more than just a mental belief in something. In chapter 5, verse 6, Paul summarizes that the most important thing is, quote, faith working through law, uh, through love, I'm sorry, faith working through love. He adds in verse 14 that, quote, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, end quote. Now, faith working through love describes the nature of what true saving faith is like. As Martin Luther said, if faith lacks love, it is not true faith. Or, as John Piper puts it, saving faith always gives rise to love, and love gives evidence of genuine faith. In other words, True saving faith involves our whole life and expresses itself through love. The reason is that God is love and we are called to be like him. And through the working of the Holy Spirit in us, he slowly by slowly is changing us and making us just like himself. Now, the either-or nature of our lives is made clear throughout chapters 5 and 6. In these chapters, Paul contrasts the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. He summarizes the deeds of the flesh in verses 19 through 21. They are all self-centered and do not lead to unity and harmony among people, but rather to division and exploitation. The fruit of the Spirit is the exact opposite. He says in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things 
There is no law. And following the leading of the Spirit results not only in personal well-being, but also in unity and harmony among people. Now note the fact that the fruit of the Spirit is headed by love. Love, by its very nature, is others-centered. Love is practical. The result, as Paul says at the end of chapter 5, is that we will not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Instead, in chapter 6, verse 2, he says, quote, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, end quote. He summarizes the gospel life in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those to, to those who are of the household of the faith. And look at how he ends the book in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. He ends with grace the same way he began in chapter 1, verse 3, where he said, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As he stated throughout the book, our whole life in Christ is about grace. It is only through God's grace that we receive God's peace. That grace and the peace that it brings transforms us. What all of this is telling us is that the gospel, and only the gospel, is the key to a transformed life. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, Galatians is, in my opinion, one of the most important books in the entire New Testament. The reason is that it is focused with laser-like clarity on the gospel, what the gospel is, and what the gospel implies for our lives. It is the gospel that separates Christianity from every other religion and worldview that exists now or has ever existed. And it is all the work of Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he has done, and what he is continuing to do through the Holy Spirit in us. If we let this sink down deep into us and permeate every aspect of our being, it will transform us from the inside out. As we live out the implications of the gospel, we will then be God's agents to help transform others into Christ-likeness. That is what the gospel is intended to do. It is the highest calling we could ever imagine. Let me pray with us. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this book of Galatians. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to earth and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord God, help us to take this deep into us. I pray that if anyone here has not already received you as his or her Lord and Savior, that they will do so right now, Lord God. But let this not just be a mental belief residing in our heads, but Lord God, let it be a living, active faith whereby people will see you in us because that is what you have intended from the very beginning. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.